Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with um, Martin Gunsten of Lund University on a really exciting uh, new translation, The Jewel of Annual Astrology. Uh, hello, Martin, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, there's so much to dive into in terms of this work and 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 its implications for um, Hindu studies, our understanding of all things Indic. Uh, but first, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this line of research. Oh, dear. Um, that's a very long story. Um, okay. <laughs> I I stay put on it, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I've been interested in, on a personal level, I've been interested in both things Indian and things astrological since childhood, really. Uh, Since long before I I took up my academic uh, career. So uh, once I'd done my um, Indological studies and, and was considering what to do with those, um, uh, I decided to switch to uh, or, or to add history of religions to that and maybe get a chance of or actually getting a job at some point. And um, uh, so I focused on Indian religions. And then when it was time to to do my uh, PhD thesis, I am um, I thought, why not combine these two interests? And uh, so I wrote my dissertation on a uh, form of South Indian uh, astrology or, or semi-astrological divination called Nadi reading. And uh, I just sort of continued working on uh, divination and astrology ever since. Wait, you did a dissertation on Nadi Jyotisha? Yeah, I did. Wow, it's, you know... Uh, as esoteric as Jyotisha is among, you know, the Kalas or the Vidyas or whatever you want to call it, uh, Nadi Jyotisha is like the most esoteric branch. <laughs> yeah. uh, within the world of Jyotisha, no one understands Nadi. So I have to ask you now, what did you, how did, how did that go? What did you find out? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> okay, so, so very briefly, um, Nadi is a word mostly used in South India, right? And um, you get basically two types of Nadi um, texts. You get the Tamil ones and the Sanskrit ones. So if you go to a a Nadi reader in South India to to get an actual reading, uh, those will almost always be the, the Tamil language ones. And the people who do these readings are typically not astrologers as such, or, or they're not very knowledgeable about astrology. And um, so that's not the type of text that I, I worked with. I did visit um, a number of those um, Nadi readers and, and got some readings. And I, I put that into the ethnographic section. Really, my, my, my dissertation had two uh, separate parts, you can say. It's it's an ethnographic description of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of, uh, well, traveling around South India and getting Nadi readings. But then for the uh, the actual textual study, I got hold of some um, texts in Sanskrit, um, if you can call it that. It was pretty bad Sanskrit. 
um, but they were um, astrological texts. So astrological Nadi texts, in Guru Nadi, Dhruva Nadi, uh, Angmasha Nadi. I think those were the, the main three ones that I worked with. So I got copies of manuscripts that I think were originally in the Government Oriental Manuscripts Library in Madras or Chennai. Uh, it's a long time since I did this, but I, I think that was the case. So I, okay. I got copies so, of those. And I, yeah, sorry. No, no, that's fine. It's uh, part of the reason for those of you listening why it's so fascinating uh, to me is that uh, let me share an experience with mm-hmm. uh, Nadi Jyotishi and then you'll get it on <clears> the <throat> Uh, the first time I went to India well, in this life, anyhow, <laughs> was hmm. in 2009. Of course, it was quite surreal coming, you know, having a sort of Indo-Guyanese background and having apparently very Indian samskara as much as yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I went and, of course, uh, I was mystified that I didn't experience any culture shock. It just, it just, <laughs> it just, I was like, okay, this is cool. Uh, I get this somehow. But I went after, what did I, what was I doing then? Oh, I was doing a, a, a research trip, a chain studies research trip. Mm-hmm. Um, after which I had a week or two to just, you know, be in India. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a naughty reader was recommended to me in the city of Pune. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just narrate for those of you listening what I've experienced and you can draw your own conclusions. And then Martin, you can maybe comment upon whether it conforms with your own research or your own traipsing about to, to not <laughs> yeah. um, So uh, a Jyotishi is obviously an astrologer, but a Nadi uh, Jyotishi, it's very different in that you don't give them, in my experience, you don't give them your birth time or any information about you. So you go to this reader and he takes your thumbprint. And apparently this is an ancient practice. This isn't like a, you know, sort of a CSI crime scene kind of thing. He takes your thumbprint. Apparently there are other uh, methods whereby he will locate your record. Yes, you heard me right. Your record, your leaf, upon which your destiny is inscribed. He, takes, he took my thumbprint. He came back with a bundle of... Um, uh, 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 sort of uh, leaves that looked, uh, you know, uh, ancient, probably need to be copied over uh, periodically for the sake of preservation. And then he says, just answer yes or no. So he picks up a leaf and he's literally reading. I mean, reading words, not nothing symbolic. Uh, he's reading and he, it'll be such that you have three sisters. No. Okay, this isn't yours. You have one sister. Yes. Your parents are still together. Yes. Um, you uh, are in engineering. No, okay, this isn't yours. And then he went to, he went maybe through about close to 10 of them, I'd say. And then things such as you have a sister, yes. You're still completing your, you're completing your education, yes. Your parents live together, yes. Uh, you are in a country that's different from the country of your birth, yes. And then at the very end, your mother's name is so and so. Yes. Your father's name is so and so. Yes. Now the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. Hmm. Your name is Raj. Raj something, Raj something. Rajvinder, Rajesh, your name is Raj. Yes. Okay, he says, this is yours. <laughs> 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 and then, 
<laughs> that's just the that's just the amuse bouche, right? That's just the appetizer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then he proceeds to um, read, you know, uh, about a score, a dozen to a score factoids about your life of the past, and they're astonishingly accurate. And then proceeds to tell a couple things yet to come. And then who knows? Time will tell, as they say. Um, some of those things have come to pass and uh, either others haven't or will not. Who knows? Uh, it, it, in this mode, I don't know how to make sense of it. I'm just relaying to my experience. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so then he, he prescribes... Uh, a couple of things that I should do for karmic remediation. And, and, uh, and then he asks, you know, do you want, there is a chapter for you in terms of karmic antecedents. Like, do you want to understand some of your main suffering in this life and, and why, like what the reason was? And well, I'm like, well, I've come this far. What am I going to say? No, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Why not? Um, we've already gotten on the rabbit hole. The clocks are melting. Why not? What do I have? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so um, he says, uh, I won't go into the specifics, but he indicated, uh, he, he sketched out a past life, uh, a, a narrative, which he says was a past life. Mm-hmm. And I had this, this series of epiphanies where, you know, the same way when you read actual narrative and you realize things, whether he was actually sketching out a past life or not, irrespective of the story he told was profoundly meaningful Hmm. as, um, as a narratological sort of karmic antecedent to the situation I was in and some of the core, you know, uh, sort of brutal experiences that I was having, the core suffering that I was having. It made, it made so much sense. Astonishingly, this man knew nothing about me, never met me before. Uh, didn't know my name. I just I, sh- I literally booked an appointment and showed up, and um, that's an experience you file away uh, on the days when 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 academics actually think that reason will save them and <laughs> <laughs> understand reality. You just compartmentalize that like a, like like a traumatic memory that you can't process and you don't think about it <laughs> on the days when. <laughs> On the days when we we honor the hubris of uh, of of the, of the rational impulse, we accept that there are things that we cannot explain. There's data that we just don't know how to process or understand. Uh, we marvel in wonder at what the hell just happened to me. Hmm. You know. Anyhow, I digress. <laughs> Please tell our audience whether this is at all uh, unique or what is your experience of naughty reading. No, no. What you're relating here is a very typical sort of experience. Uh, I mean, I, I've been, I've not had the best of luck with Nadi uh, readings. I know quite a few people who have had Nadi readings, uh, and um, like, like you said, maybe uh, ten or twelve leaves have been read through or not read entirely through but but been sort of um examined briefly uh before the the reader hit upon the right one <clears throat> in my case usually um they had to to go through you know 50 to 100 leaves and and in some cases they said no sorry your leaf isn't here uh and in other cases 
they claim to have found it, but by that time, I would have given them, just by answering yes or no, I would have given them so much information that they could more or less um, stitch something together. Uh, so, um, but I have I have had one or two readings of, of the type that you relate, uh, that where the my leaf has been found fairly quickly and some information about the past, including names, um, has been given uh, in a way that, that I can't really uh, explain. Um, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell you what happened when I... In, in Sweden, the system is when you, when you do a PhD, uh, you write your thesis, it's published, and then it's publicly defended. Uh, so there's a there's a public debate. Uh, I know this is not necessarily the case in all countries, uh, but but in Sweden there's there's this sort of ritual debate between the the um, the person defending his thesis and uh, an opponent appointed by the faculty, and it's public. Uh, so the opponent in my case was a professor of Indology. Uh, Western-born professor of Indology, um, who at the time when he was reading through my thesis um, in preparation for for this um, uh, debate, was actually in South India. So he decided, well, I should go for some Nadi readings <laughs> and you know have, get get the experience for myself. So he did. And he said the first place he went to was obviously fake. Uh, but in the second place, he related this publicly. You know, after, after discussing the various chapters of my thesis and so on, he, he started relating this in front of the audience. And he said, in this place, after a few leaves had been gone through, um, the, uh, the reader started giving these names from the leaf. And as I said, this was a Western-born professor. Uh, so it started out, and his his wife was Indian, so it started out by saying, your, your wife's name is so-and-so, Indian name, which was correct. That was impressive in itself, but then it says, your, your mother's name is, and he gave a Western name, uh, which is you know, even more impressive, perhaps, in an Indian context. And then he said, the reader said, and your father's name is, it's, it's, and he said, I can't read this. Do you read Tamil? <laughs> so this professor said, yes, I, I do. Well, look at this. And he showed him the leaf. He said, from here to here, is that your father's name? And it was a very unusual uh, Dutch name, <laughs> first name. And it was correct. It was the name of his father, and he he actually saw it written on the leaf, so, so it was there. Um, so the final question that he asked me on this day when I was defending my thesis was, "What's going on here?" <laughs> so that that I think is a fairly typical response. 
That's a that's an incredible story. I mean, incredible is probably the best word to use for this whole um, branch of Jyotisha. Incredible, mm. it's unbelievable. It's you know, uh, cynically, it's not to be you know, it's it's not to be believed. But you know, how does one explain away? You know, mm. this is my experience, your experience, your advisor's experience, the experience of half a dozen people I've talked to. That's how I knew that Nadi mm. Jyotisha was a thing. And you know, for me. I'm of the opinion that um, the paranormal or the occult, um, one of the greatest failings in, in, in modernity and especially in religious studies is people don't think critically about it. People mm. think, well, you know, it's all mumbo jumbo, you know, astrology, apparitions, uh, divin- it's a, but they put it all, they put them all into the same category of phenomenon, mm. like, oh, just stuff that, that makes no sense and therefore is nonsense. Mm. And really think critically. You know, I've met people with astonishing mental abilities. I've met people who could literally read my mind. Three, in fact. Mm-hmm. Literally. I mean, sometimes verbatim. See, that doesn't, for me, that, I've had that experience. And I could imagine that perhaps some are congenitally gifted or, or undergo a profound transformation of consciousness, whatever the case is. That I could swallow because I've been around such incredibly intuitive people. Hmm. That's a different phenomenon than your destiny was recorded centuries before <laughs> your birth on a leaf in South India, for Christ's sake. <laughs> for Christ's <Yeah>. sake. <laughs> you know, that's a very different, those, that has different implications. Hmm. And people don't think critically about these things. They dismiss them all wholesale. Hmm. But that's a very different thing. You know, the, you know, that has very different implications about free will as opposed to implications about the powers of the mind to be mm-hmm. involved. And, and this, is, this is sort of the ideas that I was playing with after this experience. You know, how much of this is scripted and like, am I able to do anything? <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, you don't dwell on that too much because then you don't decide to apply for PhD programs or <laughs> or, or do podcasts or, or what have you. But anyhow, I thank you so much for sharing the the, the, the story of your of your professor, especially because mm. these people are literally reading. You know, mm. they're reading, they're reading things that were written about your destiny, including names. In mine, what was astonishing to me was my actual birth chart was on my leaf. Yes. The man, re- he, he recreated, with no data from me, he recreated the, the portrait of the heavens at the time of my birth. Mm. Yes, that's also and now frequent. I'm thinking, why is, uh, then I'm thinking, well, I don't understand, because I didn't think this was astrological in the sense of looking at the stars and and, and the nakshatras. I didn't think it was operating under that mechanism because this is just, okay, maybe the narrative is such that there's a rishi who's able to see destinies. Let's just say this is the narrative. Hmm. That's very different from, you know, we have the stars and the signs and the constellations and now we have to interpret that. Hmm. Hmm. But apparently in this system, they're part and parcel of the same. And this is what I mean. Like when you think critically about what's happening, you're really at a loss to understand um, like the mechanism or the understood mechanism at work mm. there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I should point out perhaps that um, uh, there are, if you talk to people 
uh, in India, not Nadi readers, but but people who know about astrology and, and professional astrologers and so on, about Nadi readers and Nadi, Nadi readings, uh, you will get some difference of differences of opinion. And one thing that you often hear, and that certainly has been my experience as well, <clears throat> is that even the ones that give you names and, and things like that very correctly, um, their predictions tend not to be fulfilled. And they tend to be very stereotypical, you know, like um, if if you do this puja, if you or if you pay pay me, that is pay the reader to do this puja on your behalf, then everything will be good. <laughs> all kinds of amazing good fortune will be yours and if you don't then everything will be terrible uh, <laughs> the planets are out to get you the, the, your past karma is out to get you and uh, it's very black and white <clears throat> but usually uh, these predictions tend not to come true the good ones or the bad ones uh, that's what I've heard from many people so uh, what some professional astrologers um, have have told me in India is that they have this idea that the Nadi readers are not actually doing astrology. They're, they're putting their predictions into astrological terminology, but they they actually have some sort of preta uh, siddhi, that is, they've got mastery over a ghost or some sort of, of spirit who is whispering um, things in their ear. And, and the spirits know about the past, but they can't predict the future. And that is why they can give correct details about what has already happened, but their predictions will uh, fail. So, th so this, is, this is a theme that I've heard repeated many times in India. So how, so one quick point. Um, in my case, it, uh, it is the case Everything that was read from the leaf which he transcribed from me, I actually have it in a notebook somewhere mm. in Tamil, mm. which I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so everything that was transcribed uh, was like 100% accurate. Mm. Like, no question. Mm. Uh, my chart. But this is the thing that, you know, let's just assume it's possible that. Um, uh, that one's destiny can be known in advance and mm. recorded mm. in a in a family who 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 collects destinies. Mm. This is what they do. let's assume that's the case. Now that's very different from whatever that individual is saying now, whether through contrivance or despite the siddhi or uh, what divination. But that individual is saying whether he's a, a corrupt priest who just wants to manipulate you. That's different from him being in the inheritor of this, um, uh, this, 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 whatever you want to call this, this destiny leaf, mm. right? So mm. these are, they're different pieces at play. Now, I, I lucked out in that. I, I had one meeting and um, the man had integrity and the man, there was no mm. pressure. Uh, there was no, it was basically I donate whatever I wanted for the reading. And that's how I knew that he oh. wasn't after a certain Unusual. <laughs> Well, uh, what can I say? Glory to the gods! Like I, I ended up, I, I you know, I found, a, I found a, 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 
a naughty reader with integrity, mm-hmm. right? But but see the level of the person's um, weaknesses or personality or bent or conditioning is very different from God knows where they got this leaf from. Mm-hmm. That this is mystifying to me ironically it's not mystifying to me for someone to have a an occult attainment and be able to know things i've seen this a number of times in my life i've also seen a number of charlatans right Mm. clearly but i've seen this done you know my guru had this ability day in and day out it was never parlor tricks but you know he knew what you're thinking he he more often than not knew what was around the corner for you and you know this was just this became, you know, he redefined my understanding of what was possible. Mm. Right? Um, that I that I can understand. The idea that there is a record in advance of one's destiny, that's a different situation. Mm. We have fallen down the rabbit hole of Nadi. Uh, <laughs> you never know. You know. One never knows what's... <laughs> to be discussed but uh, suffice it to say you've 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 more than established your 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 accounted for your your interest in <laughs> in Odisha, in astrology hmm. your work is a translation mm-hmm. uh, which if anyone's ever looked at one verse of sanskrit uh, this uh, it's surprising you completed this translation in one lifetime i mean it's <laughs> a great deal of work i have to say um, but you know, tell us what this is a translation of. Okay. So it's a translation of um, a work uh, written in 1649, or completed at any rate in, in 1649, uh, by a man named Balabhadra, uh, who was court astrologer to Shah Shuja, who was the second son of the emperor Shah Jahan, and who was governor of uh, the Mughal province of Bengal in eastern India. Uh, Balabhadra was, uh, obviously Shah Shuja was, he was a Mughal ruler, so he was a Muslim. Uh, Balabhadra was a Brahmin. So he was uh, a Brahmin uh, astrologer at the court. Uh, and um, he wrote, well, he says, <laughs> that he wrote a number of works and we've no reason to disbelieve him. But the only two that survived to my knowledge is this one that I translated, the Hayana Ratna, and a similar work that he wrote five years later, the Hora Ratna. So uh, both of these are what is known as Nibandhas, that is um, encyclopedic um, treatises uh, on astrology. Uh, so he, first he wrote one on Sanskritized Persa-Arabic astrology, what is known as Tajika, and that is the work that I have now translated. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then, then he wrote a similar one on uh, what we might call classical Indian astrology, that is um, in the pre-Islamic Indian style, uh, which uh, has not been translated or, or uh, edited critically. To this point, uh, so that's that's the book. It's uh, it's a nibandha, which means um, I said it's it's an encyclopedic treatise. What, what a nibandha is um, in more detail is um, it's sort of book that tries to establish uh, definitively the um, um, 
the teachings or the conclusions, the, the, uh, the established doctrines of a particular science or a particular uh, shastra, that is a, a branch of learning, uh, often by, um, by examining one or more fundamental texts and then uh, trying to harmonize them discussing if if they contradict each other then discussing you know can they be can they be harmonized uh, if not which one is correct and which is incorrect so it's Jonardo uh, Ganeri called it um, uh, in one of his articles called it uh, a meta commentary so that's uh, that I think is is a fair description if you're familiar with Sanskrit writings you know that the commentarial tradition in India is is very important and very strong so this is like a, a sort of meta commentary in that it's it's not a commentary on just on one single text, but rather on a whole um, body of texts that form uh, a shastra a discipline. So um, let's think about this in terms of you know, the world behind the text, the world within the text, mm-hmm. the world in front of the text, or, or uh, i.e., this one that we're in now. Mm. Um, let's. Talk a little bit about the world behind the text, uh, insofar as the this historical trajectory of, of, of uh, that produced Tajika. I mean, mm-hmm. Tajika is sort of, you know, a, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, this is sort of we can think of it as the third wave or the third major innovation to Jyotisha or Indian astrology. Um, uh, could you say a little bit about the, the trajectory of of, of uh, how Tajika came into being? Mm-hmm. All right. So, <clears throat> um, what we think about as uh, or think of as as Indian astrology has several components. Um, so, if we go quite far back into the Vedic period, um, horoscopic astrology, as we know it, didn't exist in India, but there was. Uh, astral divination of a sort, um, <clears throat> and the the um, uh, especially the constellations that the moon or the asterisms that the moon passes through uh, day by day, the nakshatras uh, played an important part. Uh, so the sun and the moon and the phases that the moon form with the sun and the asterisms that the moon. Um, passed through were used for things like determining the uh, the most auspicious or correct time for particular Vedic rituals and so forth and eventually they were also used for personal divination but then horoscopic astrology which is what most of us um, think about when we hear the term astrology that is the the uh, the zodiac with its 12 signs and the uh, uh, the planets and the houses and the aspects. If we know anything about astrology, we we recognize those terms. Um, that all came into India uh, in a wave of transmission sometime in the early centuries of the Common Era. We don't know exactly when, but <clears throat> probably in the second, third, fourth century uh, around that time. Um, and was very quickly naturalized uh, so that within uh, just a few centuries 
memories of this being a foreign system of knowledge seem to have vanished. And it was the history of astrology was mythologized. It was considered a shastra that had been passed down from from uh, the gods uh, through the rishis to mankind. Um, then approximately a millennium after this first wave of transmission from the Hellenistic world, we get a second wave of transmission of astrology into India, uh, this time from the Perso-Arabic world, uh, which was occasioned um, obviously by the, the increased Muslim presence in India, um, peaceful and not so peaceful. And uh, <clears throat> this um, this transmission of Perso-Arabic astronomy and astrology uh, into India seems to have been mediated to quite some extent by the Jains, interestingly. Um, so it seems to have, have been um, transmitted by the Jains and by um, people belonging to the to mer mercantile um, jatis or, or birth groups um, that were composed of both Jains and Hindus, um, to the extent that that distinction is is uh, meaningful. But um, in any case, it it was some time before it was then accepted and ad adopted and adapted uh, by the Brahmins. So the Jains and, and the merchants seem to have been a sort of, of middleman between uh, the Muslims and the Brahmins. Um, I don't actually remember how you phrased your question. Is that... <laughs> Yeah, I'll say I'll say what I've said to many an interlocutor on this podcast. It's always about the scenic route, and questions are always <laughs> meant to be generative and not okay. conclusive. <laughs> but I was asking about laying the land, setting the scene in terms mm. of the world, you know, the text. And I think I imagine the, the listener, um, specialist, generalist, uh, uh, educated, uh, interested public, or what have you, mm. have a sense that Tajika is. Um, sort of an evolute of an uh, of a of a of a Persian Arabic grafting into this 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 the Sanskritic world of India, yes. right? Yes. And so we'll talk about the, the implications of that for the world in front of the text, perhaps uh, towards the end of the podcast. But now let's talk about the world within the text. I mean, what have you you've translated many a verse? I mean, how how <laughs> Big is the work. How? What, what is? What is the structure? You know, tell us, tell us about the lay of the land. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> Balabhadra is, as I said, he was a Brahmin. Uh, he wrote in Sanskrit, um, and he was um, he was not working from texts in Persian or in Arabic, because he was writing, as I said, in, in the mid seventeenth century. Uh, by that time, Tajika astrology had been around in India for perhaps 400 years or so. Um, and he, he was working exclusively uh, from Sanskrit texts. 
so by the time that he was writing, uh, he was uh, he was working with Sanskrit texts, uh, and he was writing for a Sanskrit literate audience. Um, specifically, he was writing for a Brahmin audience, male Brahmin <laughs> uh, Sanskritic audience, um, which means that he's um, he's obviously presupposing that his readers know astrology. That is, that they know at least the basics of a pre-Islamic style astrology. Uh, but that Tajika, that is the, the uh, um, Sanskritized Perso-Arabic style of astrology, is alien to them or, or is new to them. Um, so he, uh, the structure of the work is such that he, he starts by well, the very first chapter is is um, really um, it's partly about what we discussed or what you mentioned just now about fate and free will and and so on and the the role is astrology meaningful if everything is predetermined why what is the use of reading your horoscope and, and things like that so general um, objections and and defense of astrology. Um, and then he, he goes into the question of whether it is permissible for a Brahmin to study this foreign science. Um, is it not against the, the Smriti? Uh, so he's, um, uh, he mounts this defense of Tajika. And obviously his conclusion is that it's, it is permissible because otherwise he wouldn't be writing the book. So, But, but then after that, <clears throat> introductory chapter, he he starts explaining the, the fundamental concepts of Perso-Arabic astrology, as he understands them, uh, that are different or that are not present in pre-Islamic Indian astrology. Uh, so there are there are a number of uh, technical um, concepts, and I'm not sure how far you want to go into those i've i have talked about this book on a couple of other podcasts but they have been podcasts relating to the history of astrology <laughs> so this is this is for a somewhat different kind of audience so this is more from a, a religious studies point of view right right so we, and also um I mean, it's the the audience is a, really a mixed bag of religious yeah. studies scholars, like Hindu studies scholars, uh, interested uh, people of um, all kinds of interested uh, parties, whether they're studying or not, and so so, so perhaps getting too technical is not probably not too technical, idea. right? But but that's what he does. So he gets into the the different the the various concepts that are unique to to uh, Perso-Arabic astrology as compared to Indian. Uh, and then he goes into detail, sometimes excruciating detail, <laughs> about how to interpret um, an annual horoscope, because that is, that is the, um, as the, the title suggests, that is the central focus of the work, how to cast and interpret an annual horoscope. And this was something new. This is this is actually the main attraction um, for Balabhadra and for for his readers. Um, it's 
it's presented that way, that this, this is something really useful uh, that we don't have in uh, traditional Indian astrology. We have the annual horoscope here. Uh, because an annual horoscope, it's, it simply means that every year on a person's birthday, or, or actually at the precise moment when the sun returns to the exact place in the zodiac which it held at birth, so not just on his birthday, but, but at the exact hour and minute when the sun is in the same position that it was at birth, you cast a new horoscope. And that horoscope will be valid the birth horoscope is valid for your whole life, but the annual horoscope will be, it's an extra horoscope that is valid for just one year of life. So that will tell you in detail that you can't get from just from the birth horoscope. It will tell you what will happen during this year. Uh, and you can subdivide the year uh, and, and get very small units of time and, and make very precise predictions. Now, this practice is it, it is it only for um, um, individuals, or is it, is it also for, for example, nations or events of certain kinds? Oh, that's a very good question. There is actually in, <clears throat> excuse me, in in um, um, Arabic language astrology, uh, there is a practice of casting um, annual horoscopes for the world. Uh, but that is a different, that is, um, <laughs> I'm trying not to get too technical. It's done in a different way. Uh, it's based on different principles. So uh, the, um, the practice that was transmitted to India and, and adopted um, enthusiastically by at least some Indian astrologers was only for individuals. So it's a, it's a way of getting greater precision uh, for individual forecasting. Yes, you can feel free to use technical terms or get technical to, technical to respond. It's, it's typically my role to sort of uh, uh, mediate between the minutiae <laughs> okay. and, and, and the larger story. So that's fine. I'll, I'll, hmm. I'll, I'll, just I'll that, be sure to render it accessible if yeah. possible. It's just that astrology can get so very technical. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. Uh, that's another question we could talk about, whether it's an art or a science or both. But we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that after. So, so, so this work you've translated is a, it is a treatise on the principles of Tajika astrology, mm-hmm. uh, uh, meant for uh, sort of maybe practitioners of or those uh, conversant in um, mainstream Indian astrology. Yeah. Say that's fair. Yes. And so uh, perhaps unlike, for example, when you talk about the idea that, you know, uh, uh, horoscopes, uh, are not used by, uh, in India until some, uh, influx, uh, influence of, of Greek thought, Mm-hmm. that's going to be problematic to a number of people for a number of reasons but <laughs> let's, just, let's just assume that's the case um, it, certainly the, the, the horoscope is to uh, modern Hindu astrology as 
um, Vedic sacrifices to modern Hindu ritual. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yet it seems to me that uh, what you're saying or implying is that Tajika still isn't quite as mainstream as, 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 the, as the principles adopted from the Greek. Mm, that's right. There, there was never... Uh, actually, I was going to say that there was, there was never this um, uh, forgetting of, of the foreign origins of, of um, Tajika uh, that, that we see with what you call mainstream Indian astrology. But actually, in, uh, in the 20th century, we do get... Um, people like Bivi Raman, who is who was the uh, uh, perhaps the most important um, influence on uh, Indian astrology in, in modern times and on on the uh, the revival, if you will, of, of Indian astrology. Um, we get he he was also very. Uh, nationalist in his um, general attitude. And he, he blankly refused to admit even that Tajika had a non-Indian origin. Um, he, he claimed that, well, it, it, was, it was Indian to begin with. And then maybe, you know, maybe the Arabs borrowed a few things and then we got them back. But, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was Indian originally. And sort of a boomerang, a boomerang astrology. <laughs> Actually, there there is a um, <clears throat> there is a sort of similar argument in Balabhadra's text, um, and it's it's interesting to see that in the earliest Tajika texts in Sanskrit, uh, which are from the the late thirteenth, early fourteenth centuries, um, there's really no um defense given for the study of Tajika. There's there are no arguments given why this is okay. It's permissible. Uh, but they just sort of dive into it and say, this is, you know, this is something interesting. Um, Balabhadra and several other authors of the 16th and 17th centuries seem to have felt it necessary. Uh, to give, to make some apologetics, to to uh, to give arguments as to why it is uh, permissible to study this. So, so apparently the the resistance to foreign systems of knowledge um, increased with time. And so one one of the arguments uh, that are given. Uh, in defense of, of the study of Tajika is precisely that it was not exactly that it was Indian to begin with, but that it was given by the sun god. So there's this myth that says the sun god, uh, for some reason, <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever seen the exact reason discussed, but for some reason, uh, the sun god was cursed by Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva <laughs> together. Um, to take to be born as a human being uh, in the land of the Mlechas, that is the the foreigners. Uh, so he was born, as they say, in in Roma Capitani, in in the city of Rome, uh, and he started teaching 
astrology, uh, being the sun god, you know, he was <laughs> obviously a new about astrology. So he started teaching astrology to the Mlechas, the foreigners. And then that same astrology came to India. So yes, it, it has a foreign origin, but before that it had a divine origin. Um, so it's it's okay. That's the so, argument. I mean, there's so much there that I may engage if, if this were in a podcast, but, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the methodological dimension is fascinating to me. I just, uh, the second book that I just finished was about sun myths and right. uh, this may have been a very interesting footnote in that <laughs> book that I know about this really fascinating myth of the sun and uh, I mean there's lots to be said but let's not go down the rabbit hole, hole because <laughs> we're already down the rabbit hole of Jyotisha so let's stay in this rabbit hole um, uh, so so this this work um, actually no l- let's just take head on this idea of look you know, this is Indian, this is not Indian, this is Hindu, this this was influenced by the Persians, this was influenced by the Greek. And, you know, for, from my perspective, and this is just my perspective, you know, uh, um, resulting from my training and sort of my experiences in life, you know, let's use an analogy. Um, uh, where do cars come from? Who invented the car? Do we know? I'm what, sure what, it's what, known. I, I personally don't know, but I'm sure someone does. Is it, is it not America? I believe it's America. Okay. Who makes great cars? Only Americans? Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm saying this idea that, this idea that uh, somehow religion is, is, is bereft of the dynamism and the change that we experience day in and day out, year in and year out, um, that somehow influences don't, don't, you know, the, uh, in terms of the world in front of the text, um, certainly horoscopes are like a cornerstone of Indian astrology. Hmm. And there is a profound utility in using them whether or not this was due to the influence of another culture mm. some millennia centuries ago mm. does not at all take away from the fact that this is as Indian as Indian can be in terms of the present day, right? This idea that somehow there was this pristine India that emerged and, 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 and that's authentic and everything that's deviated from that, this idea is, 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 is problematic to say the least, right? Absolutely. It, it, should, should we not gauge the authenticity as uh, in terms of the result rather than this imagined pristine first cause of all things you see like so I don't really understand if 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 curry was discovered in another continent and brought to India should we now say that curry is not Indian no I, I, absolutely and as a matter of fact most <laughs> I would say most of the dishes that that uh, at least in North India um, that people that Westerners typically uh, associate with uh, North Indian cuisine are, are actually uh, Mughal <laughs> style dishes uh, or, or uh, evolved out of them. Um, I know I, I read at some point, this is not at all my, my area of expertise, but someone, someone at some point, I think wrote something called, uh, or something on, along the lines of King Nala's cookbook, 
you know, trying trying to figure out what food was like in India um, before. Uh, I, I don't even know where the historical line was drawn, but you know, in ancient India. Um, so uh, absolutely, Indian astrology today is very Indian, um, irrespective of where the the influences came from, um, and the problem here is that nationalism, um, political considerations, come into play, um, and have done so well since colonial times for very obvious reasons. Um, and political considerations always tend to obscure um, scholarly uh, scholarly debate and investigations. Um, now scholars in general, academic scholars in general, um, aren't really interested in which kind of astrology is best because to them, all astrology is, going back to what you said earlier, all astrology is mumbo-jumbo. So it's just different styles of mumbo-jumbo. And, and the only um, interesting uh, question to the, uh, from the purely academic point of view is uh, tracing the, these ideas, uh, the, the transmission. Uh, on the other hand, from the point of view of an Indian astrologer or of an astrologer anywhere, uh, the, the question is which astrology works best. Um, but then, of course, there is this idea that, well, if Indian astrology works best, then you know it's, uh, we're not going to have people other than Indians taking credit for that. Uh, so this is where the, the question becomes sure infected it's sort of like you know you have fertile soil of india and if you know if uh mangoes grow there and the seeds were from a different continent it doesn't mean those mangoes aren't indian mm. i mean at the same time you know obviously i'm not interested in being an ideologue or a revolutionary or you know, obviously i'm interested in ideas i'm interested in people I'm interested in culture um you know, so it's fascinating. Uh, and I understand the, the I, I completely understand and sympathize with the rub of, oh, there's another narrative of India's uh, greatness coming from outside. Mm. You know, I understand the sort of nerve that that hits. Yes. Um, uh, I also understand the need to, 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 um, how shall I say this? To Claim your your citizenship as part of the global village. Like we, we India has nothing to learn from other nations or cultures. Uh, it's a two way street, right? It's always been a two way street. Yes. And now we're realizing more. There's just more traffic along those lanes now, <laughs> right? But it's always been a two way street in every civilization, mm. in terms of influence from outside and and what they've been able to export as well. Um, so the world in front of the text, you have Indian astrologers who would cast horoscopes. So, so you would go to Jyotishi, you'd be like, I've been having a really, really rough year. Uh, you know, um, c- can you help me? And he may say, look, it's a global pandemic. What do you want from me? <laughs> we're, all, we're all having a rough year. You're like, you, know, you don't understand. Yes, I've had the pandemic, but this has happened. This has happened. This has happened. 
And okay, you know, they would take your birth information, they would cast a chart of the moment of your birth. And uh, upon that chart and sort of the house significations and the planetary significations uh, overlaid on that would also be the, 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 the ancient Vedic nakshatra system. And that would be woven into the, the predictions and the, the diagnostics of the Jyotishi. And if they were so inclined or so trained, they may use some tajika principles, mm. such as, wait a minute, you're saying things really suck this year for you, Martin. So let's do a chart of your precise solar return. And from the chart of your solar return, we can, we can, we can view more closely the, 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 the karmic fruit, the pala of this year. Yes. Now, if if I'm uh, if I'm off my rocker, I probably am, but that's a different story. But if I'm not getting what you're saying, no, uh, is, is this this is how it works? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I I would I would add though that um, <clears throat> prior to um, the twentieth century, probably definitely prior to the nineteenth, um, even. Um, even astrologers who had mastered both um, mainstream or classical Indian astrology and Tajika would not mix the systems. Um, typically, they they would they might um, possibly I don't know they, they might uh, for a given client cast his chart uh, according to both systems. Um, but um, they would still keep them separate. Uh, and it's only in uh, quite recent times, over the past um, century or, or, say, 120 or 30 years, um, that all different styles of Indian astrology have begun to uh, to be mixed together and uh, including mixing Tajika with um, classical Indian astrology. Um, and this is a result of, um, well, the, the, there's, a, there's a bigger question here about, uh, about astrology in India as it's practiced today uh, versus how it was practiced, say, two or three hundred years ago. Um, because it used to be the case that astrology was practiced by uh, people belonging to families of astrologers. So it, it ran in families. Uh, and these families would guard the knowledge of astrology as, as their uh, intellectual property, you might say. Um, now, when... Today, if you go to if you if you try to find an astrologer in India, um, and, and they're not hard to find, uh, but chances are, um, he or she, first of all, there, there are many women astrologers in India today. Uh, that's one difference. But um, very likely, he or she will not be uh, um, a member of one of these traditional Jyotishu families, and most probably will not be a full-time astrologer either. 
many practicing astrologers have other day jobs and they do astrology on the side. Um, and many of them do not read Sanskrit very well, uh, but rely on translations and very often on English language translations. So that even, even astrologers read uh, the classical works on Indian astrology in English, uh, or sometimes in other vernaculars like Hindi and so on. Um, but the what happened to cause this change was basically astrology was uh, on a downward trajectory in India um, for a long time, and then. Uh, had a revival in the around the turn of the last century uh, as a direct result of uh, the interest of um, Westerners, Americans and Europeans, uh, namely those belonging primarily those those belonging to the Theosophical Society, who set up their headquarters in South India, and who were very interested in astrology and wanted to learn about Indian astrology and managed to get some pundits to translate some of the texts. Uh, and in conjunction with the fact that printing presses were being established and that the railway was being um, built and expanded so that books and magazines could be transported over large areas, this led to a, a flourishing of translations, publications of astrological classics and and even journals and magazines so that texts that for many many generations had been available only to uh, certain families were suddenly available uh, to anyone who could pay a few rupees uh, to buy them and you didn't even have to know sanskrit uh, they were available in the vernacular including english uh, so you get a whole new class of astrologers in india uh, during the 20th century, um, increasingly so as, as the century progresses. Uh, so hobby astrologers, amateur astrologers, and they're not at all that particular about keeping things pure or traditional, and, and you know, they pick and mix. So that's, that's one reason why Tajika and non-Tajika Indian astrology today is, is very much, um, they're very much mixed in practice, which they used not to be. Oh, so then just to sort of use an analogy, uh, you know, there may be schools of thought where, yes, we can have Persian dishes, but you know, we have the Persian dishes and we have the Indian dishes versus there's a buffet and a bit of this <laughs> and a bit of that and a bit of this on the same plate, a voila, and we hope you don't get indigestion. That's what yeah. we're going to <laughs> <laughs> but um no that's very interesting there's there's a lot that's very interesting um you know by the time i met you know my teacher it was you know i trained with him the last 12 years of his life and he had given up chotisha but chotisha like he was absolutely masterful like mm -hmm. masterful uh stunningly so um perfect accuracy with predictions, like uh, uh, sort of Gandalfian, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Yoda-esque mastery. And it was, it was incredible. And what was, what was 
so profound was the way in which in the blinking of an eye he could understand something uh, about someone and use the idiom of Jyotisha to communicate it. Mm -hmm. Whether or not Jyotisha was the mechanism whereby he understood that thing, who knows? Mm. But it was it was it was staggering, such that, you know, he had the attainment to to see and to know certain things about people about events to come. This isn't even a I've witnessed this day in and day out for years. But what was interesting to me was he had the attainment to understand someone's astrological constitution. This mystifies me because then it implies. Um, I don't know what the implications are for how much of this is objective versus subjective, but for example, he could know someone's chart just by being in their presence. I mean, I've seen this. I mean, one of my first experiences was maybe a month or two after I'd met him, I was sitting at the table having a traditional Indian meal, pizza, (laughs) 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 having having pizza after one of his talks, his satsangs at the yoga studio whereby I met him. I joke that I met my traditional uh, esoteric Indian guru at a yoga studio uh, through um, studying Hinduism at the University of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I this is how I meet this this magical man. So he's sitting there, and, and you know, one of uh, an, another uh, student of his, he, he had been teaching for some time. She was she was um, uh, she had been studying for him. For, studying with him for some time and also she was the owner of the yoga studio where he gave these these talks these satsangs mm-hmm. and we're just sitting there and um and he says, uh, he says and she's learning about nakshatras right the lunar mm-hmm. asterism and uh yeah she says to him so it's just me uh it's it's gita the owner of the studio myself and mantraji mm-hmm. <laughs> of course having pizza traditional indian meal um <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in a local eatery and she says because uh, she's trying to associate sort of the the idea of nakshatras and personalities right the traits they're supposed mm-hmm. to confer on the native yeah he says so you know what's Raj's nakshatra and Mantriji says my nakshatra and I, I said but Mantriji you don't know my birthday like I don't I, I was just mystified and then when I saw it a number of times I'm like oh he doesn't need the birthday hmm. you know he literally can see someone's chart. I was sitting there making a reference to my mother one day about whether or not she would stay in the job or leave. And he just throws out something like, uh, uh, no, 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 she'll stay in the job, people with moon in the 12th house. And then he just yammers on something from the Shastra about people with moon in the 12th house. And I'm thinking to myself, she's not even in his presence. I'm just referring to her. Hmm. And he knows her chart. I don't even know her chart. So of course, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do as the as the as the as the armchair ethnographer that I am? I go and I look up her chart, and I'm like, oh my god, she has moon in the twelfth house. Hmm. How on earth? Like, how on earth could he know someone's astrological constitution uh, through, like, you know, the quote unquote cosmic wireless? You know, these are things that you can't explain. You know, you can't rationally explain. And I think, I think one, it's, 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 it's irresponsible to dismiss them mm. as fancy or delusion. <laughs> there's, no short, there's no shortage of fancy and delusion and charlatanism on this earth. Let's just get that clear. Mm. But certainly there are experiences that are uh, literally, um, like they're, they're, they're super normal, right? They're supernatural. Uh, and and more often than not, they have to do with these occult subjects like Jyotisha. 
I, there's no question there. I just sort of felt inspired to share some of. Yeah, and that's that's, that's very interesting. We we could we could go off on a tangent here and and uh, and start critically analyzing these um these ideas about what is rational and what is not rational and what what is uh, supernormal or paranormal and because many of many of the sort of experiences um, that are often called paranormal and then dismissed because of that uh, actually seem to be quite normal in the sense that many people have them. Uh, so um, I would say that whether or not it is rational to believe in them depends on your basic worldview. Uh, that is some some metaphysical presuppositions uh, make things like astrology, for instance, or uh, telepathy or different so-called paranormal phenomena uh, quite rational, uh, whereas other sorts of metaphysical presuppositions make them completely irrational. Um, basically, if, if, your, if your fundamental presupposition is that I won't even say scientific materialism, scientist materialism, um, ontological materialism is true. And basically, reality consists of matter, which is something non-conscious and, and so on. Uh, then what you will have is a system that doesn't allow for things like um, cosmic parallels between the, the, the positions of the planets in the sky and events in a human life. Um, so that sort of belief, astrological belief, will become irrational. Now, if you start out from a different kind of perspective, from an idealist perspective, saying that consciousness is the, um, the basic um, stuff of which reality uh, is built, then all of a sudden, astrology is not uh, that irrational anymore, because you you can argue at least that in in an idealist uh, from an idealist point of view, things like metaphor or correspondences and and symbolism should be at the root of our experience, if everything is made of consciousness, and these things are fundamental uh, workings of consciousness. Um, but maybe we shouldn't go too far down that road either. I just, I, I wanted to say something about this word rational and, and uh, supranormal and... You know, it seems to me it's sort of a double-edged sword in that the, the it's a fallacy that astrology is quote-unquote scientific. Obviously, it's not in terms of, you know, the scientific method or something being demonstrable. Um, certainly, the principles aren't ultimately observable, like uh, neither through microscope or telescope are you going to arrive at the, at, 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 at the would-be mechanics of, of this phenomenon. Um, and I think there's, it's also a fallacy to think that, that um, sort of scientific processes are what comprise human experience alone. 
mm. or that the human experience can be uh, uh, yeah, confined to, limited to, measured by uh, the empirical. Clearly, that if only it was so simple, we'd write a program and figure out ethics and virtue and, and sort <laughs> of like meaning and, 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 <laughs> and so much of what it means to be human is this yeah, it's this um, it's this tightrope walk. Uh, it's this navigation between like the arts and the sciences, between sort of um, inner and outer worlds. And astrology is is peculiarly peculiarly pitched between the two. In that, it, it, on the one hand, there's extraordinary um, mathematics and scientific observation. Uh, implicated mm. on, the other, on the other hand it's like it's astrology is kind of the love child between like uh, you know you know engineering and tarot reading right like and then, and then once you have you know yeah. once you right and so it's 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 a fascinating topic um and i find it, it, in india and in indian culture for some strange reason the most rational sort of successful professionals in the western world They'll, they'll go visit an astrologer when they need to. Hmm. And there's no, there's, it's, it, there seems to be much less of a, uh, an inclination to compartmentalize that certain things can't be understood, such as puja or jyotisha. Hmm. Right. Whereas, you know, for Western audience, that would not be the case. You either sort of, you have a very different worldview when you go see an astrologer or you don't go because it's, 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 it's um folly right mm. um so, so you know i'm curious to know what uh, well two things i'm curious about this <laughs> interesting logic principle that this book is about this translation is about i mean it's it's a tome right what have you have you seen it have you have you tried it out like has have you ever seen this in action oh <laughs> now we're we're moving away from um <laughs> From my role as as a as a scholar here, um, um, but but well, yes, the, the, the answer is yes. I mean, let me phrase it in a less personal <laughs> way. Have you uh, have are you aware of astrologers of Jyotishis using this principle? Oh yes, it's so it's still a common oh, principle yes. in modern Jyotisha. Okay. Oh yes, but, got it. Uh, of of um, I would say of astrology, it's not. When you say Jyotisha, it sounds uh, exclusively Indian, which it isn't. I mean, that's that's the whole point. Tajika is is um, uh, Indianized, also Arabic astrology, and and the, the the Persians and the Arabs got it from Greek sources. Uh, so uh, that is Greek language sources. Um, so it's this is something that has been uh, going around. Uh, around and around um, and annual forecasts are very much in use still even even modern western astrologers uh, some of them um, use them they call them solar returns the older term would be annual revolution um, but but they were they've been used um, in in the Arabic language uh, setting and in uh, medieval and early modern Europe, and they're still used by uh, by Western astrologers as well as as by Indian ones. 
Just two quick technical questions. Well, mm-hmm. not too technical. I'll leave those off for uh, maybe what, if we ever talk privately about this. But but what um, is it the solar return from the 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 the, the for example, if someone was born, uh, someone lives in a different place from where they were born. Uh-huh. So the solar return of their birthplace or the solar return, the chart of the solar return of wherever they are currently located. Mm. That's that's a big uh, matter of debate among modern astrologers. Um, huh. It's it's never discussed by the earliest source I've seen discuss it is more or less contemporaneous with Balabhadra, but, but in Europe. It was a French astrologer, uh, Jean-Baptiste Morin, uh, who wrote, well, actually it was a little earlier than Balabhadra, uh, but in, in the early 17th century, uh, he wrote his his own tome. It was a, also a tome, uh, the um, Astrologia Gallica, French astrology. Uh, and he's, he's the earliest astrologer I've seen uh, that advocates um, casting the chart not for the place of birth, that is the the, the annual horoscope, uh, not for the place of birth, but for the place where the person happens to be at the time. Uh, actually, among modern astrologers, there are at least three positions. Some people say use the birthplace. Some people say use the place where the person is currently living even if he or she happens to be somewhere else. And the third position is use the place where the person is actually uh, present at at the precise time. So if you were born in Canada and you live in the UK, but on your birthday you're in you're on uh, holiday in Hawaii, then <laughs> you, you get three different possibilities. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. Um, and then just one last uh, sort of semi-technical question I want to touch on because I think it'll it'll allow some discussion or some thought about the differences mm-hmm. between systems. Um, so you mentioned that this principle is also used in, in Western astrology or, or by Western astrologers. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it make a difference then that the Indian system is sidereal when you're using the system? Yes. I mean, is that in or no that that makes a huge difference actually a uh, much a much bigger difference than um, between the the tropical and sidereal birth charts uh, this is a bit technical but uh, the the question here is Indians still use what is actually the slightly older <laughs> version of the zodiac which is, um, fixed in relation to the stars in the sky. Whereas Western astrology since the Middle Ages has favored um, a zodiac that is fixed in relation to the seasons. Uh, but the that means they're not fixed in relation to the constellations, the stars in the sky. And the discrepancy between the two systems increases with time. Uh, so they're now almost a whole sign apart. Uh, but if you get an Indian astrologer using the sidereal zodiac to cast your birth chart, and you get a Western astrology using the tropical zodiac casting your birth chart, uh, they will still have the planets in the same 
houses, that is, relative to the horizon, they will be in the same places. If you were born at sunrise, the sun will be on the ascendant in both horoscopes, right? It will be in a different sign. Maybe in, in, your, in your sidereal chart, you will have the sun in Pisces, and in your tropical chart, you will have the sun in Aries, but it will still be on the ascendant, that is, it will be rising. So there are both similarities and differences between the two charts. But because the sidereal year, that is the time it takes the sun to complete one whole round with respect to the constellations, that year is slightly longer than the tropical year. It's about 20 minutes longer. That means that for every year of life, your annual revolution or your solar return will be 20 minutes, displaced by 20 minutes. So by the time you're um, in your mid-30s, uh, there will be a 12-hour difference, unless I'm miscalculating that. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's right. Um, which means that there will be two completely different horoscopes, uh, the solar return or, or, or annual revolution, uh, they will not just be uh, cast in different zodiacs, but they will actually be cast for different times. One might be cast for five o'clock in the morning and the other will be cast for five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so they will be completely different. That is very interesting. Um, we'll not pursue any of those technical threads. <laughs> But for those of you who are more technically minded and or versed in Jyotisha, I imagine you will derive some value from that response. Thank you. That was very uh, well articulated for a fairly practical concept. What are you working on now? What's next? Right. Well, uh, this this project took me rather longer than I <laughs> had anticipated. Um, so... Um, I've been, I've been working, you know, on this for more than five years. Actually, uh, I started about ten years ago <laughs> doing the first first drafts of, of you know, translations of some passages from Balabhadra. So I really want to do something other than Tajika <laughs> right now, um, and uh, but I still want to do something relating to uh, astrology. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a historian of religion, um, formally. That's, that's the, uh, the field I'm in. Um, I'm not an Indologist as such. I, I did, I mean, I, I've taught Indology, I've taught Sanskrit um, at university, but um, my, at my home university, <laughs> there is no department of Indology, so I, I'm a historian of religion. Uh, and I, I specialize basically in, in two different types of studies. Uh, one is Indic religions, and the other is astrology and divination. So sometimes uh, I combine the two, as I've done now, because I, I worked on astrology in an Indian setting. Uh, but what I really like to explore now is uh, slightly outside 
the field of, or partly outside the the, the field of Hindu studies, um, because I I I'm very interested in the um, distinctions and and the overlap, especially the overlap between the history of religion and the history of science, uh, because science and religion are two very modern concepts as they're used today, uh, and there's this clear. Uh, distinction, even chasm that, that we experience in modern Western culture between science and religion. It's, it's, it's a very modern phenomenon. And that is touching on what you were talking about just a few minutes ago. Uh, that is one reason that many people uh, really take offense at astrology and, and find it deeply uncomfortable because it, it does have, how, how did you put it? It's, it's part engineering and part tarot. Uh, I believe I crassly joke that it's the love child between the two. Yeah. But yes. So, so yeah, actually, of course, it's the other way around. Uh, at the time when astrology flourished, uh, this distinction had not yet come into practice. So it's it's the distinction that's uh, that's modern, and then it's being projected onto an earlier knowledge system, and and people become very uncomfortable about not being able to place astrology squarely in one or the other box. Um, But those sort of phenomena interest me. So overlaps between science and religion. And astrology is is one major area. There there are other other such areas, but since this is what I've specialized in, I, I have some knowledge that is not that common and that it's taken me some time to accumulate, so I'd, I'd like to make the most of that. And uh, the project that I have in mind, uh, now I just need to get funding for it, but the project that I have in mind is to do with um, prognostication of longevity or, or lifespan. There's the idea that you can determine in advance how long a person will live. And this is, this is another major cultural taboo of course, in the modern Western world. We don't want to talk about death or mortality. Um, we certainly don't want anyone to predict it for us. But if you've been to an Indian astrologer, I think I think you've probably experienced that it's one of the first things they want to talk about. And if you, if you don't want to hear their opinion about when you're going to die, you have to really almost shout it, you know, <laughs> Because it's it's very natural, and it used to be a very natural part of astrological consultations in Europe as well, uh, and it goes all the way back to the the earliest Greek language uh, sources of astrology. Let's say that the the first thing an astrologer should do in casting a chart is to determine how long the person will live. Because if you don't know how long you will you have to live, you don't know whether it's meaningful to predict other things such as, you know, will he get married? Will he have children? What sort of job will he do? Um, So uh, this idea, this connection between astrology and lifespan prognostication is very old. And it ties in very much with other um, factors like, you know, Medicine. It was the the ties between astrology and medicine were, of course, very strong, both in 
in the ancient world and, uh, well, right up to the, the early modern period. Um, so I'd like to explore that um, area about ideas about longevity and whether it's predictable or not and how astrology relates to that. And I'd like to do that from a from an intercultural perspective. So looking at the, the oldest Greek language sources, but also at the, the easternmost and westernmost areas of transmission of those ideas, which means in practice India on the one hand and Latin Europe on the other hand. So that's the, uh, the sort of thing I'd like to do. Well, that sounds fascinating. It sounds really interesting on a number of levels. Um, we'll probably uncover a great deal historically about um, how people have gone about doing this, but mm. implicitly or maybe explicitly, you're going to uncover so much about attitudes, worldviews, right? Yes. People's different ways of, 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 of... We don't live in a world. We live in a worldview, right? And the fallacy of, of thinking that, 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 that science is meaningful. It's, it's a profoundly important and useful it's not meaningful mm. right meaning comes from our worldview yes right and so uh, i have noticed that actually that uh f- for indians one of the first questions they have is well how long do i have you know right. you know can i stick around forever do i have a long life that i can do what i want and then <laughs> pursue moksha <laughs> in midlife or, or do i need to get serious now right it's <laughs> <laughs> a very practical <laughs> question isn't it? <laughs> Wouldn't you want to know? <laughs> um, and for 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 most Westerners, it's the old age, sickness, and death. Right? Like we hmm. have funeral homes, we have we have hospitals, right? We have old folks' homes. Hmm. Like you don't see corpses on the street ever, you know, unless you're <laughs> and if you do, you call nine one one and you and and you need some couch time because it's jarring, obviously. Hmm. Um, but it's a very, very different attitude towards life and death. You know, mm. well, irrespective of whether or not one subscribes to belief in samsara, belief in in the divine, or belief, uh, irrespective of one's um, commitments, yeah. right? Uh, the, the, the just the, the practical way of life is very different when one sort of doesn't see this as their one bite at the apple. And they're terrified that they're going to blink into oblivion. And let's not talk about that mm. because that's just too morbid, mm. right? So, so obviously, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> there should be sufficient enough about Hindu thought that we can have you back on the program when you're <laughs> on <laughs> once you have once you've completed that book. Yeah. And if you want to know when you're going to complete it, just cast a chart. Exactly. Anything else that you want to say about the book or, or anything in general before we close? Well, the, the main practical point to make is perhaps that it's freely available. Uh, since it was published open access, uh, thanks to a generous contribution from the, the um, body funding the research itself. Um, so it's, it's available at the uh, Brill uh, website. I mean, you... These days, some people know how to get more or less any book off the internet, but this time you can do it legally. So 
bonus. Uh, I was uh, uh, I was interviewing, I believe, uh, Joyce Fleckinger, mm-hmm. uh, and she made the same observation towards the end of the interview. <laughs> and you know, uh, she's so conscientious. She's like, "Well, you know, let's let's kind of omit that because." Uh, <laughs> You know, that's not, I'm like, no, you're just you're just stating the fact that this is done. You're not I mean, endorsing every, everyone and, knows this. And then when I when I presented it to to sort of uh Marshall, the editor in chief of New Books Network, like, you know, maybe we should excise that. He's like, <laughs> uh, are you kidding me? We do a lot for publishers, they'll be fine. <laughs> we do a lot for them. They yeah, no, we're good. <laughs> so yes. For those of you used to getting free books without paying for them, now you can do it guilt-free via <laughs> <laughs> yeah, open access um, at, the, at the Brill website. Yes, we have been talking about the Jewel of Annual Astrology, uh, an English translation of a fascinating um, uh, Sanskrit work talking about uh, Tajika or, or, or Persian astrology uh, now practiced in India. Um, and we've been talking with the book's uh, translator, uh, Martin Ganston of Lund University. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. And for those of you out there listening, uh, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating whether astrology is an art or a science or neither or both. Take care. Sure.